Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, August 14th, and we're talking about some of the best ways to spot big opportunities with investing. We're looking at 10x stocks, multi-bagger stocks. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's Sultan Supreme of Substandard Stock Scrutiny. There's no way that you put that in there, Brian, expecting that I was going to make it through that introduction. I am very (laughs) impressed, Dylan, because I don't even know if I could do it, and I wrote it. (laughs) It's always great when you can start a show out with a tongue twister. It really opens up the mouth and really gets things moving. (laughs) Despite what your title might say, Brian, uh, you are someone who is actually quite a good investor and and quite a good stock picker. And you find a lot of really good small names that wind up becoming much bigger names down the road. And that's really what we're looking for when we're investing. We want to see our capital grow because we are finding businesses that are increasing in their importance, in their relevance, and in their value. And uh, one way to think about that approach to investing is to be looking for multi-bagger or even 10-bagger stocks. And that's certainly something that we like to do here at The Motley Fool. Yeah, it's always fun to hunt for these kind of companies, right? All you need is a couple truly... Uh, truly game-changing home run stocks in your portfolio to not only pay for your losers, but really carry your entire portfolio uh, forward. And the, and, and, and the term 10-bagger date ba- dates back to uh, famed uh, mutual fund manager Peter Lynch, and he was constantly on the hunt for, he, for stocks that he thought could t- 10x in value. And obviously, like doing the same thing, Dylan. Yeah. And, and for folks that maybe are a little bit less familiar with this investing style, um, you can kind of equate it in a way to venture cap investing in the public markets. You are you are looking for those opportunities that are a little bit outsized and perhaps maybe a little bit riskier, but the upside is just so attractive that um, you're willing to make a lot of small bets with the idea that one of those really pays off for you. Yeah, that can be one investing investing strategy. And there's, there's no right or wrong way to invest. Some investors are looking for low volatility stocks that provide income uh, and are value investments. Other investors are looking to swing for the fences and hit home runs. So we're definitely covering some more of the latter today. Yeah. And, and just, you know, it's, it's good to get that out in front there because if, if you're a retiree looking for those stable income stocks, maybe not the show for you. Uh, but if you're looking for some interesting businesses that have uh, the ability to multiply many times over, maybe you're someone with a little bit of a longer time horizon, we're going to throw out some names that are pretty interesting in that space. Uh, but first, I think we should probably talk about what a 10 bagger stock might look like um, and, and what exactly we're talking about when we're talking about multi baggers in general. So the thing that I always look for when I think about a, a stock that can 10x in value, uh, the first metric that comes to mind for me is always market cap, which is just the size of the business uh, at uh, the current size of the business. It's number of shares outstanding times the, the current uh, share price. The reason I start there is the larger a business becomes, the harder it is, at least in theory, Dylan, for that company to then go up 10 times in value. So with just a, making a broad, uh, broad statement, it's much easier for a $300 million company to become a $3 billion company than it is for a $100 billion company to become a trillion dollar company. 
Yeah, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that, Brian. There's the the simple math, right? Of you know, if you are uh, in a hundred billion dollar company, even getting to one trillion is is a lot more value that you're creating, and and there has to be a lot of things to back up that valuation. But also, chances are, if you are going from you know a five hundred million dollar company to a five billion dollar company, people are starting to notice the market that you're taking share of, and they're probably going to hop in and realize that there's money to be made there. And so the larger you get as a business, the more other people realize, hey, you know, that's a pretty attractive market they're in. Exactly. So we, when, when, when we came up with the idea for the show, I went through my watch list of stocks, even stocks that I own, and I said, what companies do I think could literally 10x their market cap and that valuation could make sense? Uh, so when I was thinking through these, uh, coming up with uh, stocks that I think can 10x, I was looking for companies that were uh, growing, growing fast, uh, were small or mid-cap companies, um, growing their revenue in excess of 20% per year, and importantly, I believe that they can continue to do so uh, for a long period of time. And they also, I think, need to have rapidly improving financials. I put that wording in there purposely because they don't necessarily have to be profitable because we've seen lots of companies go from unprofitable to profitable. And when that happens, Wall Street can sometimes really reward that with huge share price appreciation. But usually they are are at least rapidly improving their net loss if they have one. And then finally, Wall Street really needs to believe that the growth isn't going to end anytime soon. Uh, A lot of these companies that 10x enjoy generous valuation multiples. And to get to that uh, 10x value at the end, uh, Wall Street really has to believe that the growth will continue even after they've already grown for many years. I really like how you said rapidly improving financials there, Brian, because uh, it, it is tempting to want a business to be profitable. And it is often not the best situation for a business to be in, particularly if they're in that high growth situation where, you know, if you know that you're in a relatively nascent market and you can grow your top line 30, 40% year over year, relatively consistently uh, for the next couple quarters or years, and you can wind up grabbing a lot of those customers before other people wind up coming into that space, you should be funneling your money into marketing. You should be building out that customer base, especially if you're in a sticky product where once you get people in there, they're going to stick around. Um, it would be misguided to focus on profitability. That said, as a business gets bigger, you start to see the margin profile change a little bit. Hopefully, that moves in the right direction, um, possibly a debt load lowering. Those are the types of things I would look at and say, the, the financials are improving, even though they're not profitable. Um, those are still very good signs. Yeah, and you just brought up a good point here. A common valuation metric that people use to judge companies is just the price-to-earnings ratio. And it's a great metric that we absolutely love at The Fool when you use it appropriately. But a lot of times, companies that are growing fast are reinvesting every dollar they can, and then some, back into their operations to grow, 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 and take take market share in an opportunity that they see. That's exactly what you should want to happen if you are a a growth investor, but oftentimes that leads to bottom line net losses or minuscule profits compared to what they could be. For companies like that, you really can't use the P-E ratio at all. It's basically a worthless metric. 
Yeah, and you can get some sense of that stuff with looking at price to sales. Um, but you know, the the whole basis for comparison is is totally different. You know, what would be a totally normal price to earnings ratio uh, would possibly be a high price to sales ratio. Um, and and frankly, you see a lot of high price to sales ratios in the tech space where we tend to focus because we know once these businesses become profitable, uh, they choose to become profitable because they're so high margin, they're so scalable, they often command those higher multiples. Exactly. And, you know, I know we're going to talk about Amazon in a little bit as a company that has 10x over the last decade. One of the big knocks that a lot of investors have had against Amazon is where's the profits? I don't see any profits. The price to earnings ratio is negative or in in the hundreds or thousands. That is a classic, great example of a company that purposely reinvested like crazy to drive growth. And that led to huge shareholder returns. But again, on Amazon, the PE ratio over any time over the past decade would have been a worthless metric. And just to spend one more second on that, Brian, I mean, if you are deciding that you don't have other places to put the money as expenses and you wind up showing that money as as net income, you're paying taxes on that money. And so, if you have better places to funnel it because you have an internal rate of return with the dollars that you're putting out there, um, that is, you know, 20, 30%, why, why wouldn't you do it? You know, if, if if you can minimize the tax load, we talk about tax efficiency all the time from an investing standpoint, right? Not selling, not incurring short-term capital gains. Um, the less you sell, the less less taxes you have to pay. Um, companies often think about it exactly the same way. Exactly. It's almost like Amazon made its business into like a 401k uh, for the last 20 years. And then at the end, uh, it, it's basically now it's, it's starting to show profits again. And it's now, as you pointed out, its tax bill is skyrocketing. For, for my own purposes, I put together what, what is more a statement of a uh, 10-bagger characteristic rather than the checklist approach. And it doesn't surprise me at all that you went checklist with this, Brian, uh, because that is, that is very much your, your investing approach. And some of our listeners know that you have an awesome methodology for looking at companies. Um, the, the easiest way I can sum up something that looks like a 10-bagger is market-leading position in a growing industry that still has a lot of growth in front of it, and they probably still have a lot of market share to gobble up. Um, I think if you can check those boxes, you wind up on the path to maybe maybe not a 10-bagger, but probably a multi-bagger. Um, and, and maybe that's an important thing for us to point out here, Brian, is if you're aiming for a 10-bagger and you get an 8-bagger, that's fine too. <laughs> yeah, that's not a bad outcome. And I would say the only caveat I'd throw in there is, yes, I think you are 100% correct there, um, but this is yet another reason why I heart recurring revenue, Dylan, because if your revenue, if you have recurring revenue and you're growing into a massive opportunity, you are building off a bigger and bigger and bigger base. If your revenue is one time in nature, you're on a treadmill and you have to outdo yourself every year that passes and that becomes exponentially harder as you grow. So yet another reason why we stress recurring revenue, recurring revenue, recurring revenue. We want sales to be easy, right? We don't want to have to go to deep discount to bring in new customers every single time. We want those customers to stick around and keep paying us. Uh, Brian, with all that preamble out of the way, let's talk stocks. I mean, that's what people are here for. They want to know ten. Uh, they, want, they want to know companies that can ten x. Uh, you've got two. I've got one, and then we'll do a little debrief. What's your first business? 
Okay, and obviously we're going to throw out that there's a lot of caveats. These are not official picks, but hey, these are companies that I think can 10x in value. So the first one I'll throw out there is a spicy little software company called Red Violet, ticker symbol RDVT. This is a company with about a 200 or so million dollar uh, market cap. Uh, it was spun off into the public markets um, in 2018, and it's already up over 200% since then. Dylan, have you ever heard of Red Violet before? <laughs> no, I haven't. Okay, perfect. That's how <laughs> I like great. it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the audience for this episode because I, I love it when you bring a name to me and I'm like, all right, tell me all about it. <laughs> okay. So Red Violet is a software company that is focused on uh, big data analytics. So they go out and they purchase huge pools of data from a wide variety of sources, uh, mostly from, from public uh, sources. Um, they say they have nine petabytes of raw data. That's a lot. And they use, they develop this custom software engine that allows their customers to take that massive data set and provide intelligence and make sense of it. Now, Red Violet has two main products that they've rolled out, and they have said that they have more, uh, more in development, more on the way. I like that. That tells me optionality is already embedded in this company. Uh, the first one is called IDI, and it is mo- mainly aimed at the uh, risk management and fraud detection uh, agency. So they take, da- again, this, this massive amount of uh, data, and they sell the information, and they and they sell the service to companies like uh, insurance companies, uh, private investigators, uh, bail bondsmen, uh, collections agencies, uh, debt buyers. Those uh, those customers want information on their customers, and IDI helps them to track down customers, get contact information uh, for them, and to uh, and to recover debts and, and prevent fraud. So it's not exactly like a business that you are screaming in love with if, you, if you're a Big Brother fan, but that's the business. Uh, and they have attracted more than 5,000 uh, uh, customers so far, and we're going to get into the financials in a little bit, but as you can imagine, it's a software company, so the margins are pretty good, Dylan. Yeah, I think that's a that's a staple at this point of the the tech show is software company high margins. Let's go, um, and and I think just to quickly emphasize the the trend that this is really hitting on is analytics and big data. Like that's that's the tailwind for this business. That's correct, and that's a massive market that is only going to grow in importance uh, over time. So, okay, so that's their IDI business. Uh, Their second one uh, is called Forewarn. And this, again, leverages their massive pool of information. And this product, Forewarn, is specifically designed for the real estate uh, industry. And the way they sell it is, imagine that you are a realtor. You have a house on the market. You get a phone call from a prospect and says, hi, I'm interested in this, this property. Will you come show it to me? You are the realtor, you have no idea who's on the other, uh, other end of the phone. You know nothing about them. All you have is a phone number. This product, Forewarn, allows you to take that phone number and get criminal background history uh, on, on that person to see if they have any bankruptcies. And basically, it lets you know more about the customer, the potential customer, that you are about to go to a private location and meet with them with no other, nobody else around. So they have, they have signed up over 40,000 uh, real estate agents in just the last 
last uh, two years since this product launched because, again, it provides them, it, it provides realtors with a way to manage their risk and prevent some, um, some bad things from happening when you're meeting with people that you've never met before face-to-face. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, you mentioned the fear of Big Brother, and it might not be an appealing company for uh, folks that are maybe in that world. Uh, I'm reading 1984 right now, Brian, and, <laughs> <laughs> and it is definitely sounding that alarm a little bit for me. Uh, what, what are the books like look like for this business? Yeah, and again, just as you said, Dylan, I understand why that why this company's core business is going to turn off a lot of people, and that is completely fair if you want to take a pass. But the finances on this business are definitely rapidly improving. Uh, so in 2007, the company did $9 million in total sales. Again, not much, small company. Uh, in 2019, that number jumped to 30 million in sales. So that's, that's more than a quadrupling uh, in two years. What really attracted me to this business was the margin profile, Dylan. So again, they spend a huge amount of money to get these petabytes of, of information, and then they sell it. And because their costs are largely fixed, the margins are just exploding at this company because every additional sale they make is basically 100% gross margin. So their gross margin was 18% uh, in 2017, and that jumped to 59% in 2019. Management thinks that with scale and time, they can get this above 80% uh, within the next couple of years. So that is causing gross profit to really expand if you look at the first half of, uh, of 2020, uh, revenue has grown, but kind of a hard environment to sell any products. Um, so in the last quarter, their revenue did drop uh, 3% when compared to the previous period. Management did say that they are seeing rapidly improving growth since the bottoming out uh, in April. But again, even though this company has very little sales, they were free cash flow positive over the last six months. So on a net income basis, they're still showing losses, but they are producing free cash flow of, uh, of uh, $1.8 million just last quarter. And the balance sheet here is squeaky clean, uh, $14 million in cash, uh, zero debt. And the company believes that its total addressable market opportunity today exceeds $10 billion. How much of that will it capture? I don't know, but there's probably a lot of room between $30 million and $10 billion for this company to grow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's uh that that's the beauty of being in this smaller space, these smaller market caps is you know you don't need a four hundred billion dollar market opportunity. It, you can be a lot smaller and uh, you can still wind up putting up some pretty incredible returns. Brian, when when you look at this company, obviously not everything can be great. What what are some of the risks that you see? Uh, we're looking at a smaller business, so I think just off the bat, we're looking at a different set of considerations here. But what else? What else comes to mind? Yeah, so this was a uh, a spinoff uh, that has some some concerns. They're going and again, the market that they're in face they face some pretty big competition. We're talking about uh, Palantir, uh, which is that multi billion dollar company that's that uh, is uh, about to come public. Uh, LexisNexis. They're competing against TransUnion uh, and Thomson Reuters. So it's not like they have this market all to themselves. I think that the market is big enough that there can be multiple winners and they've seen to develop some niches for themselves that they can kind of um, uh, own and, and really dominate in specific use cases. Uh, but you can't ignore the competition here. Uh, one, two other risks that I saw was um, uh, concentration risks. So they get 40% of their data that, again, they, they resell um, from one source. 
So if that if they ever had a bad relationship with that one data provider, um, that could really hinder their their selling uh, proposition to customers. And then on the customer side, a uh, one customer accounted for fifteen percent of revenue. That's actually not that bad, given how small this company is. That they only had one customer that was um, that represented some concentration risk. Uh, but those are definitely two risks to uh, to keep in mind. One other that I'll throw out there is that two of the major shareholders of this company, uh, Phil Frost and Michael uh, Browser, uh, they don't exactly have perfect reputations with Wall Street. They've been accused in the past of dealing with pump and dump schemes. And those two shareholders uh, have 22% and 17% uh, of this company. So that is something to keep in mind here. I think that that's an important point, Brian, because um, when when we think about really big businesses, those are huge ships. To steer, you know, if if you're uh, a Mastercard or an Amazon, those are very big businesses, and leadership matters. It, it's obviously super important. Amazon wouldn't be Amazon without Jeff Bezos. But I think as you get into smaller and smaller companies, management matters a lot more because their reach and their ability to transform a business or or burn it to the ground um, is amplified because they have so much more reach in the operations of that company. Yeah, and that's completely fair. Um, so far, from what I've seen uh, out of this company, I haven't seen anything nefarious yet, but that's definitely a risk for investors to keep to in mind. Uh, Derek Dubner is the uh, CEO uh, and the chairman of the board here. He has been since, um, since the company uh, was split in 2017, and he actually has a history of making successful exits with businesses exactly like this. Uh, he has taken two to get bought out for more than a billion dollars uh, combined, and if you listen to him, he thinks that this is his most exciting opportunity uh, yet, but to your point here, Dylan, I, I don't think that the, the backing of this company is, is bulletproof by any sense. So I have taken a position in the company myself with a tiny part uh, of my portfolio because I think the business is actually really attractive, but you have to go in eyes wide open if you're going to get into this company. Yeah. And to be clear, I wasn't saying that as an indictment of current leadership. I was more speaking just broadly about investing in smaller businesses. The management team matters more. And so it's worth paying attention to anything that you can glean about management, uh, just because they're going to have a little bit more influence over the direction of the company. No, not not trying to throw anybody under the bus here. Uh, Brian, your, your second stock is another company that I admittedly didn't know before you threw it onto our prep sheet. So I'm excited to hear about this one too. And Dava, walk me through this one. Awesome. Glad to hear that I'm two for two with getting companies that you've never heard of. Uh, so, Endava is a much bigger company. It's a $3 billion uh, market cap. And this is another recent newcomer to the, the public markets, and it's up over 170% since its 20, 2018 IPO. We both know that winners keep on winning, and I love to see when companies have uh, really had a great debut since they came public. Uh, so, Endava is an a consultant fu- company that focuses on IT. So they help big companies to develop uh, digital strategies and make the most out of uh, mobile, uh, the Internet of Things, cloud, automation. The simplest way to visualize this company is they are like Accenture, but smaller and hyper-focused on just tech. Yeah, and actually, I remember uh, I had a conversation with John Ratanti a couple years ago, and he was saying, if you want to blindly bet on technology, the advancement of technology, the fact that it's going to be changing and there are going to be disruptions, 
Accenture and consulting businesses are a great place to put cash because they will be there no matter what the implementation is, no matter what the strategy is, clients will be paying them to be able to help bring them into the digital age, whatever that might look like. Yeah, I, I think that that's a great statement because if you look at four of the biggest publicly traded tech consultants out there, um, and this is one of them, they have all been fantastic uh, investments, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into why. But uh, So, Endava is mostly focused uh, in the UK. It's actually a UK company, and about half of its revenue comes from the, the UK market. About a quarter of it comes from Europe, and the remainder comes from North America. So, North America is actually this company's smallest segment, but I like that they're focused in, in the UK and Europe, because that does provide some diversification and, and for some geographic um, uh, distribution when compared to companies like Accenture or, say, Globant or, or EPAM. Uh, but very similar business models to those other two. They provide a full suite of tech services, um, and they have attracted almost 400 total clients, 67 of which pay them more than a million dollars. And a nice thing about the IT consulting business is not only are there always new things to talk about, to train on, to consult on, but they are recurring revenue uh, relationships that you get, and they're very sticky. Once a company signs on with a tech consultant, they, st- they tend to stick around for years on end. And that, again, provides companies like Indaba with a base that they can build off of as they land new clients uh, and grow. And that explains why this company's revenue growth has been so strong. So in 2016, uh, the company was doing about $169 million in revenue. Uh, last year, 373 So that's a compound annual growth rate over 30%. COVID has definitely slowed down their growth rate. Um, but longer term, management believes that they can re-accelerate growth back up into the high 20 percentage. And these businesses are also very uh, scalable. So they enjoy stable gross margins, not super high software margins, Dylan, but stable. And they have produced profits and free cash flow uh, the entire way. So when I look at a company like Accenture, I see a market cap that is, again, $150 billion, and Dava, $3 billion. That's a lot of room between the two. Yeah, plenty of room to run there. It's a proven model. That Kager is hard to come by. You know, it doesn't matter what sector you're looking at. Seeing a uh, was it three year Kager of over thirty percent is pretty darn impressive. Yes, it is. And 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 again, as as John alluded to, the market for these services is just massive. Uh, the the estimates that I see is four hundred and fifty billion dollar IT cons- uh, consulting market today. That's expected to almost double. Uh, just within the next uh, five years. So this is a market that is so big and the need is so huge that there can be multiple winners. And so many of these consulting companies have been winners for investors. Yeah. And and maybe if you're on the client side of this, this is for the worse. But if you are on the (laughs) consulting side of it, it's for the better. The goalposts are almost always moving with tech. And so, I mean, Brian, how many many different software solutions have we talked about addressing major enterprise issues over the last four years? Um, There's always something different sprouting up. And it's very easy for these companies to stay in business and to grow their business because this space is just changing so quickly. 
Exactly. Uh, another thing I like about Endava in particular, it's still run by its founder. Uh, his name is John uh, Cotterall. He himself was an IKEA consultant, uh, saw the opportunity, wanted to strike out on his, on his own. Uh, he built this business from the ground up. He makes occasional acquisitions, and he still owns 19% of shares outstanding. He gets glowing reviews on sites like uh, Glassdoor, so clearly the kind of founder CEO that we want to we wanna see. Now, with all that in mind, I think the opportunity here is huge. It's important to remember they are facing up, uh, off against the likes of Accenture, uh, Bain, uh, McKinsey, Epum, uh, Globant, and hundreds of other uh, small consultants. So far, they've, I mean, that's always been the case, and they consistently win their fair share of new business, but that is a risk to keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah, those are some big businesses. You know, that that three billion and what was it, one hundred and fifty billion Accenture market cap? Uh, that's that's not that's not big brother, little brother. That's uh, like <laughs> grandfather, little brother um, in terms of size. But yeah, I mean, if they can keep those growth rates going, there's compelling business there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't see a lot of concentration risk either, given that they're given their size. They, yes, they do have sixty-seven customers that are responsible for more than a million dollars in revenue, but their top ten clients only accounted for thirty-six percent of revenue. And that number has steadily decreased uh, over time as the business continues to grow and diversify. So I don't see a tremendous amount of risks here other than potentially overpaying and the company's market share gradually diminishing. All right, Brian, our, uh, our first company was sub $500 million. Our first one was in the billions. I'm going to throw out something kind of in the middle here as our third stock. And this is probably one that some fools are familiar with. Certainly going to be familiar with the space. Um, they com- they operate in a very similar space to a full favorite, the Trade Desk, and that is Magnite, formerly Rubicon, formerly Talaria. Uh, this is like the prince of stocks. It just goes through different names uh, every every couple months, which I think is a risk. We can we can talk about a little bit down the road. Um, but really, the the story with this company is we have seen a massive pivot to digital ad spend over the past decade. And I think in 2019, it finally eclipsed traditional ad spend, and it is expected to continue to climb while the traditional ad market more or less stagnates. And I think overall digital is expected to grow somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 17 to 13% CAGR year over year for the next couple of years. Um, Magnite plays in a very small portion of that space. They're in connected TV. And so, you know, if you are watching something on Hulu, and you get an ad thrown up in between your segments, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Um, And anyone that follows the Trade Desk is going to know this space. You get ads into slots. Magnite and the Trade Desk kind of operate on different sides of these transactions and of these markets. Magnite is on the sell side, which is the publisher side, and the Trade Desk is on the buy side. And uh, I think one of the reasons that I'm very interested in this business is over the last five to 10 years, digital ads have been a great place to invest. It's been a, a huge moneymaker, it's high margin, and that's where advertisers want to put their money. They're seeing more effective ads, they're getting better ROI on their spend, they're getting increased analytics, and all of those lead to better outcomes for their ad budgets. Um, 
And we've seen this model play out pretty successfully with the trade desk. I think that that's a safe statement there, right, Brian? I think the trade desk is already a 10-bagger at this point. Um, Magnite has a lot to do to catch up, and they operate in slightly different businesses. They have slightly different financials. Um, the, the, the margins are better for the trade desk right now. The revenue's higher. The growth looks better. But I see a very proven model, and I see an industry trend going in a very specific direction. And the company expects the core market, Connected TV, to grow at a CAGR of 22% for the next few years, reaching over $50 billion. Um, I like it because it's a sub $1 billion company. I think their market cap is currently around $850 million. And we see a proven success track record in this market already with the trade desk. Now, I mentioned before, Brian, that there are <laughs> several different ways to know this business, and I think that that is probably the largest risk to it right now. It has gone through a huge transformation. It's gone through a merger. It's going through a rebranding. There are all these different things that pose potential issues, and if you look at their financials, they're a wreck over the last <laughs> couple of years because of all of these pivots. I don't like to see a lot of major corporate changes in a very short period of time. But for a business like this, it's small enough that there is huge return potential if they're able to capture that sell side of the market. And they seem to be the leader, especially uh, on the sell side. Yeah, I've heard about this company numerous times. I know that some lots of fools uh, really like this company a lot previously when it was Telaria, and then they merged with the Rubicon project, and then they changed their name again, as you point out, to Magnite. Um, so... Yeah, I do think I, I agree with you. There is a lot of potential uh, for this company. I when when I was looking at it previously, the thing that uh, I noted was the merger that Telaria did with the Rubicon project was pretty sizable, given the the relative uh, scale of the two businesses. And when I see that, I always like to I, I always like to put the onus on the companies to be like, all right prove that you can do this. Prove that you can get to the other side and realize all the synergies and benefits that you can. I think if they can, the upside potential here is huge. And, and to your point, I, th I think they're playing in a, in a big market. So the company, to me, uh, definitely has 10x potential. I'm still in a wait and see to see if they can actually execute like they're uh, planning on. I think that's fair. That transaction was really done with the goal of creating one integrated independent sell-side advertising platform. Like that was the goal. Uh, the Rubicon project was a little more focused on the programmatic side of advertising. Telaria was focused on the connected TV market. Put them together and you have a really compelling idea. I kind of liken this business to a company that was on the licensing model of, of software sales and is moving over to software as a service and is going through that transition of selling you know the the discs almost you know uh, to getting people on a recurring revenue model um, Brian we've we've talked about this plenty before but it's wildly disruptive to a business to go through that type of transformational change you wind up far better on the other side of it than you were originally but you have to eat some pain during the the middle I think that that's kind of where this company is. And um, given the number of things that have to go right, it's it's a small allocation for me. I own very little of it. But when we're talking about these 10-bagger potential stocks, the idea is that you don't have to own a lot of it. That's exactly right. One of my favorite fools of all time, Tom Engel, always says about great growth stocks or stock release kind of potential, if this company is the next great growth stock, a little is all I need. If it's not, a little is all I want. 
That's exactly my approach to these companies. If you, you just need to devote a little bit of your portfolio to them, knowing full well that they might not work out. They just might blow up in your face. If you only do a little bit, that's fine. But even that little bit, if it does 10x, that can become a portfolio moving for you. So our three stocks that we were talking about here as 10xers, we have Red Violet, ticker RDVT. We have Indava, ticker DAVA. And we have Magnite, and that ticker is MGNI. And we were primarily focused on smaller businesses here, Brian. Um, you know, we two of our picks were sub one billion. One of them was three billion. Those are all relatively small companies. You know, in, in the grand scheme of the companies that we talk about often. Um, I think it's worth highlighting, though, there are big companies that can give you that ten bagger return. It's not impossible. It's just a lot harder because the denominator is so much bigger. And so just to look back at the past decade, Amazon, Netflix, Salesforce, MasterCard, Tesla, NVIDIA, all 10 baggers giving investors over a 26% annualized rate of return. Pretty impressive. Completely. I mean, those companies have been monster winners. And yes, to your point, I don't think you exclusively have to look at small caps and mid caps to get 10 baggers return. Although I'm looking at the market caps of those companies, Dylan, right now, <laughs> 10 years ago, and I see 5 billion, 13 billion, and 26 billion. Uh, so, or in Amazon's case, Amazon was 50 billion and it has what, 30x uh, since there? I mean, just insane. So, yeah, you can look at companies that are even as high as 50 billion and still get 10x return on them, which is just crazy to think about. But overall, I think if you are hunting for 10xers, you'll find more when they're sub 10 billion than you were when they're over 50. Just out of curiosity, Brian, I didn't, I didn't ask you to prep an answer to this. So if you don't have one, it's okay. Is there a company that is more in the 10 to $20 billion range that you see now? And you're like, you know, I could see it. I could see it being in that 10-bagger conversation. And maybe you could do some rounding, and it could be an 8-bagger. Uh, and we'll say over like the next decade or so, um, a business that might belong in that combo. Wow, really put me on the spot. And since you did so, <laughs> I'll say Etsy. Etsy is a $15 billion company. Given its, its domination and what we've seen happen with, uh, with uh, e-commerce in general, I could see Etsy being a $150 billion business one day, especially if it continues to roll up smaller niche markets and really become the, st the, the standard for non-Amazon e-commerce. It's possible. I'm sure a lot of fools would like to see that. That's a heavily followed fool stock right there. Um, I, I think on my end, I will since I put you on the spot, I will put myself <laughs> on the spot as well. Um, I think Slack could be one of those businesses. We've seen enterprise software companies really take off. Uh, they're a $16 billion business, so I, I think it would be kind of hard. But they they seem to be in there, and they, they seem to be offering something that is uniquely different from what people are using Microsoft services for right now on the enterprise side. Uh, TBD on that. But uh, <laughs> and I reserve the right to be wrong to quote uh, Tom Gardner. But uh, I, I think that that's a small enough, big enough company where there's enough opportunity there that it might fall short of that ten bag, but it but it could provide some pretty good returns along the way. I'm going to be really mad if it only nine bags from here, Dylan. <laughs> See, that's the thing. Shoot for the moon, even if you miss, you wind up among the eight bagger stars. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for hopping on this episode with me. Great to be back, Dylan. <laughs> Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email over at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at MF Industry Focus. 
you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show. The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks, our fellow behind the glass, uh, for all of his work. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Oh, 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 o